Well, we, I ended up going out. It's we went like to Mc, McMiniman's Tavern and Pool out there on the oh, end okay. of 23rd. And nice. um, and then when we got in there, the staff, I mean, they were great, right? I mean, Miniman's people are always super friendly and super cool. Um, but these guys were like, I mean, I don't blame them in a way. It's like one day you're, it's a freaking rainy November afternoon or whatever, and then suddenly Bruce Springsteen's walking <laughs> through the door in Portland, Oregon. And, and so they were like, uh, so there was kind of a stunned factor. I had, uh, they were like super, like, <laughs> There was a lot of attention. I was sitting in the booth with the guy, and there was a ton of attention being paid to half of our booth. Not my half, because he ordered, when we got there, the first thing was like, do you guys want something to drink? And he wanted some tea, and I wanted a beer. And uh, so he gets his tea, like, within microseconds. Like, boom, there it is. Boom. I had to ask after my beer four times before it showed up. That's pretty cool. You're a part of history. You're part of Portland history. <laughs> Well, really, it's a very, very cool thing. And let me tell you, when they discover all the bodies in my backyard, I'll be even more of a part of history. This is pdxpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. That was local author and biographer Peter Ames Conley talking about his lunch with the one and only Bruce Springsteen. Peter is the author of a new biography, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. Featuring tales with Carrie Fisher, Woody Allen, Nelson Mandela, drugs, depression, marriage, divorce, and a little folk rock band, you may have heard of them, Simon and Garfunkel. is Gregory Day. You're listening to the Weekly Portland Podcast at pdxpodcast.com, also northwestpodcast.com, also pdxpod.com. Also, I am serving up entertainment news every Thursday from 9 to 10 on Morgan Day, Oregon. My segment is called The Dish, and it's on Morgan Day, Oregon, Thursdays, 9 to 10 a.m. It's terribly exciting. So we begin our interview with a detailed analysis of the personality of Paul Simon by the author himself. Paul has said at times that he was he had a superior mind and an inferior body. He was always extremely self-conscious of the fact that he was really short. Really short, five five? No, less five three maybe. Really? Some people think he's five one. You know. Um, and also that he's not all that handsome and that he's not all that, uh, you know, of course, his losing his hair from such an early age at a point when, right. at the start of the hippie era, when the hair was kind of like, a, had kind of a Samson-like thing about it, you know, it was like your power, you know, especially if you were, you know, in I music. Mean, Artie with his amazing fro. Exactly, exactly. And Artie was kind of both his, his shield in that way because Artie was tall. Artie had this angelic blonde hair and these beautiful blue eyes and looked kind of like a seraphim really and had this incredible voice yes and his dad he had sort of a yeah his dad was a little very self-critical and also critical of paul if you're a parent you know what it's like to see your own 
like lesser impulses coming through your children and it drives you berserk. You see your shortcomings in them and you want to and that you can't stop bitching about that right. to them without thinking that they're just taking it personally, they don't understand. So um so Paul had this very difficult relationship with his dad um and these other things and so and yet he was a resilient little bastard, you know, and he could yes. fight too. Yes. And he knew how to protect himself. And yet in The Boxer, you hear the song about the poor boy sort of cold and lonely wandering around New York City trying to fend for himself and getting battered in the process. Right. Right. And uh, But then you get to that climactic verse, really, where he says, you know, and it's really beautiful poetry. You go, in the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. And when you think about how many times, and which I think is just beautiful and tells the story of, of Paul to a great de- degree, especially when you think about the number of times over the last 60 years, I'm not kidding, going back to when he was in high school, when he has said he's going to quit the business. He's done with show business. <laughs> right. And he no, never goes right. away. You know, but it's, I think he he's... released a new album, 2016, too. Yeah, exactly. But then after that, he gave a big interview to this guy at the New York Times, and he said, yeah, this is it, I'm going to retire. And the guy made all this big headlines about it. Like, the New York Times really played it up to the extent where... Um, when this that be- is it. This is it. This yeah, is and then like three days later, they had the guy come back. Like his story ran on a Friday, and I think by that Tuesday, he had another column, which was the sort of how I got the big scoop story. And um, but of course, there's no scoop whatsoever because Paul has said that the first time he said that he was talking to the uh, high school reporter from the the, the Forest Hills High School Beacon, uh, who was asking him about uh, when Tom and Jerry had their hit. And he was saying, "Are you guys going to stay with rock and roll?" And they were like, "And Paul was like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to college. This is this is just fun for now. But you know, we're both going to go to college in the fall, and then you know, music will be over. We'll live real lives." Um, and he said it again and again and again. And so uh, it keeps getting up. It keeps getting knocked down. Yeah, but the boxer still up. remains. And partially, it's not. I think largely it's because music with these guys, you know, these older guys that can never really give it up. Um, it's not the money, probably, for most of them anymore. It's, it's, but it's, 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 it's what they are. It's what they are. It's like that's why they're alive. That's why these guys. You look at somebody like Jagger or or McCartney or even now it's Bruce, who's sixty-seven, and but on stage they're ageless. I saw when I saw Paul McCartney, who's in his mid-seventies now, on stage at the Rose Garden last spring. He's bounding across the stage like a little kid, like a, like a teenager, really. He's got that spring in his step that even I don't really have anymore, <laughs> you know. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, it, you know, and Bruce and those guys, it's like, what else are they going to do? Like, people say, well, why don't you retire? You go, to what? Like, this is what I love the most. Like, what else? What am I going to do? Garden, you know? And it's like, and for somebody like Bruce, you know, I mean... All that energy, can you, or any of those guys, can you imagine the power of an ovation that you get when you walk out on stage in front of 20,000 or 50,000 people? I can and it's it in my dream. Yeah. It's a dream. Well, I once got into a weird situation where, which is, it, it was crazy and a lot, and it didn't, I didn't deserve this, but this, this thing, but me and a bunch of guys, it was, got involved in this modern dance troupe. The joke was that none of us were dancers. And so the choreographer, um, 
Sounds very modern. It was it was way modern. It's so modern. It was it was so keen. It's Cougat, you know, as they say. And anyway, but um, so we did this performance and for fifty or sixty people. But then through a weird chain of events. There, uh, the Oregon Ballet needed money fast, and there was a big benefit for them at the Keller Auditorium. And for some reason, I think to be sort of rodeo clowns, they invited our little dance troupe to perform along with the Joffrey and the San Francisco Ballet. Wow. But we were, but of course, we were sort of a punchline. We got up there. We were sort of proving the point that we're just a bunch of buffoons. And yet the audience was very much on our side because we were a bunch of buffoons um, sort of playing their role up there. And... Um, and the applause we got after that, I remember, because I've been in public before, you know, I've, I've been in front of audiences, I know what applause is like. Um, but this was like a physical force. It was like, almost like being carried, it was like when you're walking into a powerful wave, or a wave that's more powerful than you think, and it picks you up, and almost flings you, and flings you backward. I mean, we weren't, I wasn't physically flung, but... Yeah. And it's like, that happened to me once, undeservedly, for 30 seconds. It was great. Love it. Never forget it. But, um, but if you're Springsteen or Paul McCartney or Jagger, you can just make that happen 200 times a year or more. 365 times a year, if you wanted it, if you could stand it. And that's what keeps those guys going. I think I get that. Yeah. That and the fact that they just live and breathe and radiate music. One of the weird things about the release of this book was that um, really the first major article that came out um, that got a lot of um, play was this New York Daily News story where they basically read the, the galley of the book and they isolated like the trashiest stuff that's in it, which is not a lot of the book. I mean, like the most kind of damaging or the most, the darkest moments, let's say. And they, they plucked all that stuff out and turned it into an article like, this is like new biography says Paul Simon's a monster was the gist of it <laughs> and so boom right and then um, and then the news of the world or the Daily Mail one of those over in England picked up on it and they basically use that as kind of notes just to write an even larger story it's like in the same way that you could take you know really anybody's life and through a series of you know my life in particular and just if you isolate enough incidents over the last 53 and a half years then like suddenly I'm like a huge asshole which is like true sometimes but it's not true I hope it's not true most of the time that got things off to a little bit of a weird start tonally um, even though a lot of the reviews didn't really get into that at all at least the ones that I liked the best um, the others, uh, you know, in a weird way, you can sort of see how the narrative gets driven by that because there'd be certain phrases that would come up again and again, even in the fairly thoughtful reviews, like phrases like song stealer. Um, and there are just, you know, a small handful of examples in Paul Simon's, you know, long and vast career where he did play a little more fast and loose with song credits and, uh, and royalties and such than he than he needed to, and it's disappointing. Um, he can be a little more two-fisted um, when it comes to the way he deals with that kind of stuff, and um, and that's part of sort of the puzzle of his character and kind of the uh, you know you know he, the box up. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. The sort of pugilistic side of the guy, the street fighter part of the guy. Um, and that exists, but it's, it's swamped by the amount of stuff that's clearly his own writing. 
that he did that's totally legit and totally great. And uh, the reviews on Amazon are great, by the way. I mean, so you know, domestically you're looking great. And, uh, <laughs> glowing, glowing reviews. I loved what you said about uh, that song, the box, uh, characterizing the man himself. And uh, a bit of trivia: I read in your book. Um, that that song was written partially on a plane, partially at the Benson yeah. in Portland, Oregon. Where we happen to be sitting right now. Right, I know. Right. What are the odds? Um, yeah, well, it's an interesting thing. He started writing it, uh, I think, in the f- mid-fall of 68. And uh, um, it, it was on an airplane. He wrote it, like, on the margins of an airplane magazine, which he hung on to, the early verses. And then uh, they were indeed at the middle part of fall of 68, flying out to Portland to play a show. So they came out here and stayed in the Benson Hotel, which was then the fanciest hotel in town, and uh, played at the Memorial Coliseum. Yeah, it's not too shabby. And they played at the Memorial Coliseum. And, um, you know, and he came out and he wrote the other verses, or some of the other verses at least, on Benson Hotel stationery. So, really? Yes. How do you know this? Because at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame archives, a few years ago when I was there doing research, they had a Paul Simon exhibit that opened. I, you know, I sort of pegged my research visit to that, and and right in the library where I was doing the, you know, my archival research, they had a little display they were just putting up that about the boxer. And lo and behold, I was sort of reading the handwritten lyrics, and I looked at the top of the, the page, and I thought, oh, my God, that's the Benson Hotel. <laughs> you know, Portland, Oregon, 97201. You know, it was just like, <gasps> I love it. Yeah. That's great. We're doing a podcast about Portland, and we're tying this major star to Portland. I love that. The passages in this book about his relationship with Lorne Michaels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very yeah. close. And they instantly bonded. Yeah, he met him. That's interesting. Uh, I think in the summer, early summer of 1975, because Paul was... was so funny on SNL. Yeah, he was. I, I watched it as a kid. Yeah. Because he's so, he's the straight man. He's a great straight man. And he was playing against type um, so effectively. <laughs> and and also, the, the other thing was that he wrote pretty much, you know, a lot of the sketches that he was in. The, the most famous ones. Uh, like when he plays basketball, he's this tiny little guy, and he's playing with this guy who's like 6'10 or something, and Paul's like squirming around between his legs. He's a shabby chase. He looks tiny. He looks like a little man. I mean, he's 5'2", 5'3". But then the other sketch that was sort of kind of a revelation was the in the second season, the Thanksgiving show, he came out and sang. Uh, just the, the cold opening was him on stage alone with a microphone dressed in a huge sort of ornate turkey suit. And he starts singing Still Crazy After All These Years, which was like his single at the time. And uh, he gets about a verse into it, and he's like, you know, stop it, stop it, stop it. I can't stand this anymore. And he looks to the camera, and he goes, you know, I wanted to be a good sport. You know, I didn't want to be, like, the downer guy. They were always saying, why do you always have to be so serious, you know? And he's really digging into his sort of public character there his facade and it's kind of brutal you know but then he has this little tantrum he can't sing this in the suit and he wants to get out um, the concept piece yeah and he do? wrote it all himself it's written in his hand um, really? yeah and, and, and how, did you, how did you find that out was there an archive there or no actually SNL told you this there was a book about that actually the Saturday Night Live people put out in the mid 70s oh. like a couple seasons into Saturday Night Live that had some of the scripts and stuff and picture backstage pictures and scripts and 
some other stuff in there, kind of, you know, in those trade paper kind of humor okay. books of the time. Okay. And you're a bit of an archivist yourself, so you've got... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To, ...to fall back on. Yeah, so a friend of mine gave me that for Christmas or something, or That's my birthday, great. and then I just hung on to it. One of the things that I that struck me immediately was they had this, the, the script for that sketch, and someone hand-wrote in parentheses... Um, he wrote this himself, and they un- underlined it, and that always stayed with me. Peter is also the author of Bruce, a New York Times best-selling biography of Bruce Springsteen. I wanted to hear more about the process of getting that biography done. I, I was working on that book for a year and a half, um, just on my own, independently. And uh, before I started, I was talking to, um, you know, I sort of, I sort of pitched it, like in a phone call or something, to the guy, my editor at the time. And um, and he was like, "Yeah, it's a great idea. So let's. Why don't you do it?" And uh, so then I so I got that offer, and, and I went to a friend of mine named Dave Marsh, who's a rock and roll writer and a really good music writer, and also has been very tight with Bruce and Bruce's manager John Landau, going back to the early '70s. And Bruce and uh, excuse me, Dave had written a couple. You know, he wrote this really great book about Bruce that a lot of guys my age, our age, I suppose, uh, read early on called Born to Run. It came out in 79 or so. And it really sort of was sort of carried the the, the, religion, the Springsteen religion in it. You know, it was kind of, it was like this beautifully told tale of, of Bruce's, you know, sort of Bruce's past and his, me, you know, his childhood and his meaning and what his promise was, you know, in terms of rock and roll. Um and so I got to know Dave a little bit, just like through email and whatever. And uh, he was real kind to me and blurbed one of my earlier books. And so I called him up when I uh, was starting going to start the Bruce book. And I said, I don't know if you're working on something, but if you are, like, I won't bother starting this because what's the point? He's the inside guy. And he goes, no, 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 I'm never going to write about Bruce again. Because um, his wife, as it turns out, is also Bruce's co-manager, like that started after Bruce wrote his, or excuse me, after Dave wrote his book. But Dave said, "Look, you're gonna, you know, like I think this is a great idea. You should do this. Um, but now you're gonna ask me about access, and all I can tell you is um, I can't help you there. All, you're gonna have to submit a request like everyone else, and they're gonna tell you no. But what the no really means is maybe, and if you can wait, it might turn into a yes. So what you should do is take the no." And then get started, take the no as a maybe, get started on your book, work on the book you want to write, and at the end of the day, they'll either talk to you or they won't, but you'll still have the book you wanted to write. And so I thought, very good advice. And so I I did that for a year and a half, and then one day the phone rang, and it was Bruce's manager, John Landau, who was like, do you got time to talk? And, you know, and I started talking to him, and and, uh, I... He said, well, I'd like to meet you, and, um, I, and it just great coincidence that I happened to be going to New York three days later uh, for a week, um, and um, so I went out there, and we had a drink, and at the end of it, it was like, okay, I think uh, we're ready to cooperate. Actually, his, his literal phrase to me was, I can give you the keys to the kingdom, which was like, God, you know, because they'd never cooperated with an outsider. year and a half, it, just like, yeah. what the hell? And he was fantastic. I mean, I really, I really came to, to, to like John a lot. And uh, he was just infinitely helpful. 
And the, the greatest thing was the fact that he said from the get-go, and they reaffirmed time and again over the next year and a half as I was working on the book, that they had no expectation of having any control over what I wrote. It was like, we're going we're gonna to give you the access, have these experiences, take away from them whatever you want, and you can write whatever you want from them. And, um, and we hope we'll like it. And so, you know, and that's like as good as it gets. It really is is. as good as it gets. The interesting thing about Bruce is I got to know him. I mean, even before I met Bruce or or those guys got involved with with the project, you know, I was spending all this time in central New Jersey talking to people that he knew, um, that he'd grown up with, people who he'd played in bands with, like as a teenager, um, kids that were, you know, his kindergarten buddies. And they were all cool guys they were a lot of fun to hang around with and um and it was like and they were all like super warm like they all loved bruce to the nth degree and were protective of him to you know to a great degree but they were more than happy to talk about this guy that they knew who they loved who was a really great guy um you know cover to this book too who took the photo who was the photography by on this? On, on the on the cover of the yes, book, yes. I, that's I think that's Richard Avedon. Yeah, he took it. That actually, Avedon. Oh wow! Ah, was it Avedon? I believe it it's was. A great that's profile. I might be wrong about that. It might not be Avedon, but I remember it was published. It was for, I, I recognized it immediately from a Rolling Stone cover in 1992. Image. Yeah, I, it might not have been Avedon. It was. It might have been somebody else, but it was a big name photographer, um, and. Uh, and it looked great on the book. I mean, our, on, on our book, it really did. I, I, I was so thrilled when they came up with that. Okay, well, we talked about Bruce Springsteen. We had to do that because he did come here. And yeah, it was quite an event. <laughs> well, I, you know, he came out here to do a signing. Um, yes, that's right. Uh, in November. Yes. Or October, whenever that was, and I just got back to town, and we keep in touch a little bit. So I said, "Hey," oh, that's I, I, I sent him a note and said, I'll, "If you got time, I'll come and say hi." And he's like, "Yeah, come on by." So, uh, so I just gen- come on by. Yeah, just come <laughs> come by the bookstore. So you know, I mean, then I okay. gotcha. get in touch with the management and say Bruce is, you know, I mean, right. It's right. sort of the way it works. Yes. And uh, so I was in there, and uh, I thought we were gonna, you know, say hi and catch up for a couple of minutes, and he'd be off. But he was like, no, no, let's go somewhere and sit down. So we, he's like, where should we go? <laughs> and I was like, oh no, there's a million restaurants and places, cool places in Portland. Where do we go? But we're sort of there's a couple factors. It's like times. Where'd you go? Well, we I ended up going out. It's like um, <laughs> we went to Mc, McMinniman's Tavern and Pool out there on the oh, end okay. of 23rd, oh, and nice. um, and uh, we kind of had a little lunch and and uh, he had it some tea and uh but the amazing thing well there were a couple amazing things the first amazing thing was that decision wasn't made until we were actually in the car and then and yet there were still people waiting outside the place when we got there like i think they had were following the car and just sort of got out ahead and kind of figured out this must be the place and (laughs) and unfortunately parking is easy nearby so they just leaped out of their cars And then when we got in there, the staff, I mean, they were great, right? I mean, Miniman's people are always super friendly and super cool. Um, but these guys were like, I mean, I don't blame them in a way. It's like one day you're, it's a freaking rainy November afternoon or whatever, and then suddenly Bruce Springsteen's walking through the door <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. And, and so they were like, uh, so there was kind of a stunned factor. I had, uh, they were like super, they, <laughs> 
it, it was interesting. There was a lot of attention. I was sitting in the booth with the guy, and there was a ton of attention being paid to half of our booth. Not my half, because he ordered, when we got there, the first thing was like, do you guys want something to drink? And he wanted some tea, and I wanted a beer. And uh, so he gets his tea, like, within microseconds. Like, boom, there it is. I had to ask after my beer four times before it showed up. And they would say things like, uh, let me go check on that. And then ten more minutes would go by. I'm like... What do you? What exactly needs to be checked on? Plus, also, this isn't a big place. Like, I can see the guy behind the bar right over there. They're gossiping. I don't know what was going like, on. Uh, trying to get an autograph, probably. I don't know. But, but, but anyway, it was an interesting thing. But, but it's pretty cool. You're a part of history. You're part of Portland history. <laughs> well, no, really, it's a very, very cool thing. And let me tell you, when they discover all the bodies in my backyard, I'll be even more of a part of history. Part of the process for me right, doing research right. on a book like this is that I always start off with, um, you know, the existing literature, the, the books that exist on somebody um, and the serious, you know, the, whatever the magazine profiles are, the serious writing that's been done and go through, and, you know, circle all the, you know, circle all the names and all the sources and try to figure out, who, you know, who they spoke to and, and, and where those people are. And then hopefully at some point, you know, maybe hopefully early on, get in touch with the writer. Because the writers generally, especially the journalists who are there, the sort of doing the contemporaneous reportage, they're great sources because often a lot of the best stuff doesn't make it out of their notebook, and that's the stuff that they remember even 50 years later. And so, uh, yeah, and you know, and that's and that's a great place to start because especially if you can kind of you know, if you develop. Why is that? Why is the best stuff not make it to the book? Too controversial? No. Sometimes the narrative bends in another direction. Oh, I see. Narrative. Yeah, it's just a question of storytelling, really. I mean, there's a lot of times when somebody will tell me something or I'll, I'll get a story and it I'm just... the narrative. And it's like, this is going to be a great set piece for Science, this like chapter or for this part of the life. And I can't wait to get there. And then when I get there, I realize that, you know, the story kind of runs like a river. It cuts its own channel through, through the rock call that killing the baby they call that it's called um uh what are they uh murder uh, your dar uh kill your darlings is that it it's for po- i mean it was it, uh, filmmakers often use that quote yeah the thing is you gotta the, oftentimes you'll find yourself just struggling over a paragraph or a section that's not working and the only way to make it work is to cut out that one paragraph that you loved the most because it had that great word choice or that great little phrasing or, you know, phrase or two. Pretty much always the right choice. Yeah. No. It's amazing how liberated you feel when you, when you, when you turn around and kill something that, uh, <laughs> that, that you, that that you, you treasured creating and, and love deeply. Wow. It makes you feel a little like... pretty profound here. <laughs> there's a little of the, the, editing, the, the editing process, which is like being a psychopath. It's true. It really is true. I'll be chopping this up, that's for sure. Oh, Well, the one thing about the book, the story that really led me to the, the subject, besides um, you know, that experience of growing up with this guy's and continuing to live sort of with this guy's voice sort of in my, you know, fairly high up in the, in the, in the, in the soundtrack, is, uh, you know, just in the world around, is, 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 is how 
his story and the story of his family as you know Jewish immigrants who came to this country in the late 19th and early 20th you have century. A Jewish background yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, our fam- my family is very much like his. You know, you arrive in that uh, late 19th, early 20th century window when Eastern European Jews were, you know, sort of being run out of uh, Eastern Europe and Central Europe and 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 Russia, which is it takes on a bigger context. Yeah, is what you're saying. but what happens is they, they come over to the United States and you sort of go through that. It, it becomes a very speedy process for a lot of families between um, old world orthodoxy and just American style assimilation. And you get to the point, you know, people change their names, they, you know, they change their pasts, they change their identities. And the thing about Paul's music and the, di- the crazy diversity of it over so many years and how he just moves from culture to, you know, from style to style to style, culture to culture to culture, and, and you know, nation to nation to nation and all over the world ultimately um, is that same kind of it felt to me like it was that same assimilation process only writ in music over and over again um, and so uh, that was a big part of and that was fascinating to me a lot of what I try to write about is a particular, I mean I've written four books three are about um, about musicians three of them are about American musicians Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and uh, Springsteen and, uh, and now Paul Simon and um, all of them, I thought, sort of illustrated different, um, very vital strains of American cultural history. Um, you know, with the Beach Boys, it's that whole sort of manifest destiny and the growth of the, you know, the move across the prairies into, you know, the Gold Coast of California uh, and the kind of transformative power of that. And, and again, it's another question of redefining yourself in your own terms. Uh, Springsteen was more the kind of working class experience and the, you know, that straight sort of good American experience, the, you know, the America that we want to believe in, the democratic, you know, America where, you, you know, you speak your mind and, and uh, people listen to you and take you seriously and one vote, one man and the whole business, which, of course, is now tumbling beneath a huge orange wig. Um, but... Um, and then the Simon thing, which was about, you know, the immigrants. Um, and obviously my family's experience and my own sort of, you know, the fact that I grew up in Seattle in a completely secularized, secularized environment um, as somebody with no real religion and no real connection to any kind of past um, sort of resonated with me when I, was, when I was thinking about Paul and many different ways that he sort of re... sort of... Sounds like a personal journey for you, almost. Yeah, a lot of you know. One of the things I'd read a while ago, which I thought, which actually made sense to me, um, is that like every biography somebody writes is really about the writer, about themselves, to a degree. You're sort of, I mean, in the way that you tell the story. To, I, I mean, it does. It's. That it's not helping you insert yourself into the situation. Yeah, well, you know, you can't. You're perceiving something through your own pair of eyes and your own sense of 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 reality and morality, I suppose. And, um, you know, the stuff I do is, tends to be pretty interpretive. Um, I like to write from a more sort of emotional and psychological place, especially when I'm talking about, you know, writing about art, particularly about artists and creative people. Because, you know, what I'm really trying to, 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 to figure out is that moment where somebody walking down the same streets as you and I, um, seeing the same things and experiencing the same things that we do can sort of run that through their sort of internal prisms 
and it comes it, it emerges from them sort of as a sort of a, into it, the it's a beam of light you know as art that affects everybody else i mean they have a very personal experience and can express themselves about it in a way that it becomes it reflects experiences other people have all around the world we have not talked about Carrie Fisher. Oh, right. That relationship. Um, obviously, wow, it's a very long relationship. 13 years. Yeah. 13 years of his life. Was it 12, 13? And Something like that, yeah. About 12 or 13. Yeah, and they were married for a matter of months somewhere in the middle of that. And, and how, how do you research that? By interviews, by uh, old Playboy magazine articles? Sure. Well, there's a ton of interviews with Paul. Um, people always talk about him he's rarely open, giving interviews, but he well he has over the years. There's a couple key interviews where he really sort of unspools about Carrie, yeah. um, and then there, of course there's her writing on the relationship. She wrote a lot. She's a great writer, very funny lady, very funny and extraordinarily bright. And I did yes. some interviews with people who Frank. knew, yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, it's tragic that she died so young. I mean, and she was a brilliant, um, such a brilliant very person. Sharp. Yeah. I mean, and sharp and funny as hell, too. Yes. And so even as, like, a, you know, she was, I think, 22 or something when they met. But they, uh, and he was 30, I think he was 14 years older. 15 years. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, she could stand up shoulder to shoulder with him. And, um, you know, and they had this very sort of operatic relationship. I mean, they loved each other. They were deeply passionate and very physically connected. The uh, original sin in the Paul Simon and Artie Garfunkel relationship yes. Yes. took place in the fall of 57, even before the deal. The deal, the original deal for them to, to make a record as Tom and Jerry with a song they wrote called Hey Schoolgirl. Wasn't this the first chapter? Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's in, like, the first-ish. It was a yeah. lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so um, the lawsuit wasn't about this part of the thing. It was right, just, that's right. But they, but Paul and his father, who was a professional musician, were negotiating the terms of the contract with the guy that owned the record company and was the producer and wanted to put out this single with these guys that they had right. written and performed together as Tom but and Jerry. Was totally not. Yeah, but what while you would expect. yes, but, but but while they were, you know, yeah, they were being like New York, they're being like the Everly Brothers and writing like pop, teen pop stuff. They were a boy band. Um, but part before they recorded the tune, Paul and his dad sort of leveraged a solo contract for Paul. That's right. Right. And and didn't tell Artie about it until Paul had actually rec- recorded the song and it was about to be released. Um, and he did all that with his dad and all of it behind Artie's back. And so the song came out, you know, the single's back. He was about, a young guy. I yeah, mean, he was 15 at the time. I mean, you know, I mean, you're a young guy. Your dad's telling you to do something. That's not really his fault. I don't know how much his dad told him to do it. Really? Yeah. He's a 15-year-old kid. I know. He's a 15-year-old kid, right? But as Artie told him when they were arguing about it in 1983 or 84, he said, uh, when Artie finally said, like, you know what? I'm still really pissed off about this. And and they were... Yeah. Well, they were talking about it, and Paul said, how can you... He goes, I was a kid when I did that. And Artie said, you're still the same guy. There's a lot of stuff in the book, even though I never spoke to Paul, um, who was so monumentally opposed to me as, as you know, writing his biography. Right. Um, and yet you still like the guy. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, what's that. not to love? I, I, I love that. I love that. that uh, even though he didn't cooperate at all, didn't want, 
Yeah. No, he was a total dick to me, but, 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 you know, that's, I get that. That's how it is. Yeah. And he, uh, but on the other hand, it's like, I still, it's fantastic music. And, and also he's, he can be a real charmer, you know, and I've, I've heard from, yeah, yeah. Very fair. I try to be, you know, because there's no point in just ripping the guy's lungs out. Because it's like, you know, his music is beloved, you know, and he is, in a, in a sense, kind of beloved. I think That makes me trust you, you know, as a writer. Because you're really presenting it as a complete picture. And, you know, you were misquoted in, in a lot of these publications, but you're presenting it from a love-hate relationship almost as well, a writer. Yeah, like, sure. You know, as, it's, a, as a fan, too. Well, sure. I mean, yeah. I knew. I mean, I was one of the things I I, I I go back to again and again is is listen hearing a Paul Simon song on the radio was like my earliest memory of the radio, or at least the moment when the radio really uh, yes, you've said that before. clicked in before. It's you know when I was five years old in 1968, in my sitting in my parents' backyard in Seattle, and uh, hot summer afternoons, and I'd be playing with my toys in the backyard, and and all the teenagers and. Uh, would be you know the teenage girls to the left of us and a couple doors down on the right would be right. out back sunning themselves and there'd be these college guys painting a house over the fence and they all listen to the same AM radio station on their transistor radios and um, it was a collective thing back then. and so yeah Mrs. Robinson was on the air like every 18 minutes and so as a five-year-old I grew up just with this hearing this over and over you know hundreds of times over the course of three months you know dee, 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 dee. and so uh, and then from the time I was in grade school the inter- I'm 53 and a half almost 54 and um, I, like every significant part of my life from that time before I went to preschool um, till now when I'm like my kids are in you know my daughter's going to graduate from college this year um, but there's fresh new Paul Simon music that has been a part of like every era of my life you've been listening to Paul Simon for what 40 years oh jeepers man almost 50 Peter Rain's calling it's been a pleasure this was a real surprise you're a real surprise <laughs> you never really know how these things are going to go yeah and uh, you're uh well, I showed up with no pants on. I think that gave you some reservations at first. <laughs> Thanks so much. My really? pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And it. thank you for listening to the Weekly Portland Podcast. We'll be back next Monday. See you then.